science. The secular world tries to claim it and hold it up as proof that religion is false. And yet, Catholics believe that honest inquiry always leads us to God. Today, I get to chat with the director of the Vatican Observatory, Brother Guy Consolmagno S.J., to talk with us about how science points to the reality of God. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm Lisa Maladnik, and we're talking today about how science points to the reality of God with a very special guest. Brother Guy Consolmagno, SJ, comes all the way from Rome, where he is the director of the Vatican Observatory and president of the Vatican Observatory Foundation. He was born in Detroit, Michigan, earned undergraduate and master's degrees in earth and planetary sciences from MIT, and a PhD in planetary science from the University of Arizona. He worked as a postdoctoral fellow and lecturer at Harvard University's Department of Astronomy and MIT's Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences, served in the U.S. Peace Corps teaching physics at the University of Nairobi, and was a physics professor at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania before entering the Jesuits as a brother in 1989. At the Vatican Observatory since 1993, his research explores connections between meteorites, asteroids, and the evolution of small solar system bodies. Brother Guy has authored or co-authored many books, including Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? and Other Questions from the Astronomer's Inbox at the Vatican Observatory. Welcome, Brother Guy. It's great to be here. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, I, we were just chatting before we started recording, and I met Brother Guy with some other homeschooling families several years ago when he was promoting Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial, and it was just a, such an enjoyable chat, and we all got to talk with you afterwards. We have such happy memories of you. Especially of the chocolate cake. <laughs> yes, the chocolate cake at Cheesecake Factory afterwards. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, so, and, you- <laughs> and I bring that up because I think that's an important key to why we study science. Hmm. Do tell. We, we believe as Catholics in a universe that was created by God. And at every stage of creation, God says, this is good. Mm. This means we encounter God in the physical world. Now, there are other people who are going to tell you that the world is an illusion. There, there's nothing to study. We couldn't do science if you did that. <laughs> there are going to be people who say that, you know, everything happens is totally random or it's the act of a nature God. Zeus is the one who threw the lightning bolts. If you believe that, you couldn't do science. Mm. But it's Christianity that got rid of all those nature gods and said there's only one God who is the creator, but who is supernatural. And because we believe in a universe that's good, rather than saying chocolate cake is a lure of the devil to bring you down from (laughs) something more spiritual, you can instead experience it as a foretaste of heaven. It's part of the joy of being alive, part of the joy that makes, even in our fallen state, we creatures, the envy of angels. Thanks be to God. Isn't it wonderful that God speaks to us through something beautiful, whether it's a chocolate cake, a sunrise, or a shooting star? And this is the way that God speaks to us, because we are created beings in the physical world, and God uses the physical world to come to us, including the incarnation itself. 
<laughs> and I think part of why homeschooling families homeschool too is just to have the beauty of the naturalness and the supernaturalness woven together in the way we raise our children to appreciate that presence of God and being present to each other and and you know running outside with our notebooks to to sketch a bug or to or to pull out our family's telescope and look at the stars. I have to say from the homeschooling families I've met a lot of it too is the parents want to be able to be there when the kids discover these things. It's just so much fun to see it happen. Oh, it really is. And I feel like that's one of the things that you bring to all your talks, Brother Guy. I really appreciated what I've been able to see of your many videos online. So everybody, please do look for him online. Um, is that you have that joy, that, uh, that wonder in the universe um, that really pervades everything that you speak about. One of the most important things I learned as a graduate student, because being a graduate student can be hard work, being a scientist can be hard work. But if you go and talk to kids, you remember why you wanted to do this in the first place. And you remember the fun that's supposed to be there. And if it's not fun, God's not present. Because God is the one who surprises us with joy. Lovely. Steal a line from C.S. Lewis. Yeah, hello. <laughs> no, I love that book. Um, also, it's a good reminder to, um, for us as we're raising our children too to enjoy that joyful period of them discovering their passions and discovering the universe, but also to remind them when they're older, don't forget, don't forget that that's where it began. Um, speaking of beginnings, why did the church found an observatory anyway? Why does the Vatican have such an interest in science? Well, there, there are two stories to it. The first is that science was a part of the university system invented by the Catholic Church. You know, why do you think you wear dark robes when you graduate? They're basically clerical robes, right? Wow. And as part of the studies, before you could do theology or philosophy, you were expected to learn arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. And astronomy in those days, they meant cosmology. How is the universe put together? Because you have to have this sort of background structure into which you can then understand your theology or your philosophy. Now, the fascinating thing is that even when our understanding of the universe changes, our theology and our philosophy endures and grows. It doesn't get destroyed when we suddenly realize that the, the heliocentric world is a better description than the geocentric world, or that by golly, a galaxy-centric world is better than heliocentric, or now we've got a universe that is infinite and has no center. <laughs> All of this builds into our theology and makes it richer. And to my mind, that's one of those great reassuring things that we should never be afraid of the truth, and we should never think that we've got the truth whole, and that there's nothing more to learn, you know? Boy, it would be boring to be a scientist if all you had to do in science was to get the answers in the back of the book. So, it goes back to the Middle Ages. Specifically, the Pope, Pope Gregory XIII, hired a bunch of astronomers in 1582 to reform the calendar. And that's a whole story in itself, which I encourage people to look up, because how the Catholic Church changed our calendar and used the calendar that's now used around the world is and how other religions resisted, but eventually most of them have come around. That's a fascinating story and reminds you that science and religion have gone hand in hand. Things continued at the scientific revolution. People made great steps forward and a couple of false moves back and forth. For a long time, people thought you could use science to prove God. 
until they realized eventually that doesn't work because God is bigger than science. Use God to prove science. You don't use science to prove God. As I say, your belief in God is what gives you the courage to be able to do the science. In the 19th century, in the old Victorian era, when people had come up with steam engines and electricity and they figured, you know, from now on we can solve anything with, with science, who needs religion anymore? So it must be that religion is against us. And the one place where religion was against the big trend of that day was when religion spoke out against eugenics, against that misinterpretation of evolution that said, ah, we can improve the human race by getting rid of all those people who aren't as good as you and me, which conveniently enough are all the people who look like you and me. Yeah, hello. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and the church was the only group that would speak out against that and say, even if that interpretation is right, it's the wrong thing to do. It turns out it's bad science. They didn't know that yet. Still, in order to show the world that the church supported science, Pope Leo XIII, we always seem to get on the 13th on our side, Leo the Thirteenth in 1891 said, "Let's have a national observatory for the Holy See, and this will be evidence that the Church is physically supporting the study of some science." Now, there was another thing going on at the time. I've got to confess: in those <laughs> days, the part of Italy that the Pope had ruled as a nation had been taken over by the new Italian government. And the Holy See was reduced to the area just around St. Peter's in Vatican City. And yet, they still insisted they were not subject to the laws of Italy. They're not subject to a king of Italy. They were independent. And having a national observatory was a way that their independence could be recognized by other countries. So in 1891, there was a big program that uh, the astronomers in the world set up to photograph the sky, to make a, a photographic atlas. And every national observatory was given one chunk of the sky to photograph. The Vatican got one chunk, and Italy got a different chunk. Huh. Because Vatican is different from Italy. I so love it. It did the job they needed. <laughs> right, exactly. And I love the way the church from the monastery system and then the university system, as you referred to, how that was all an outgrowth of the church and its own inquiry about the ways of God found in nature, that how that dovetails dovetail so nicely with supporting this ongoing research at the Vatican Observatory. Of course, at this point, some kid in the back is going to go say, well, what about Galileo? Yeah. And I got to bring up Galileo, yeah. in part because everybody does. And one of the reasons they always bring up Galileo is they've got nobody else to bring up. <laughs> this is the unique moment when it looked like the church was suppressing science. But that is that 19th century version of the history. When you actually look at what was going on in history, and all these documents are available in English. You can read them yourself. There's a historian named Maurice Funuchiaro who's put together a book called The Galileo Affair. And for a high school kid who wants to research Galileo, read the documents, figure out for yourself what's going on. Don't listen to me. But the best description I've heard of the Galileo Affair was it was not theologians arguing with scientists. It was two different groups of scientists arguing with each other because Galileo really didn't quite have the goods. His idea was right, but his proofs didn't work. And it was theologians arguing with each other, because there are different ways you can think about how do we interpret scripture. And it was philosophers arguing with each other, because there are different concepts of how we understand knowledge. And all of that is changing at that time. The church did wrong. The church did wrong to tell 
Galileo to stop publishing. And yet the motives weren't because the church was afraid of science. The motives were a whole lot more complicated, big theological and philosophical principles, and a lot of petty, boy, he insulted me in his book, and I can't stand that. <laughs> there's, there's also political motives. You know, this was all going on at the height of the Thirty Years' War, which was a war that was as big and nasty as World War One or World War Two. Oh, wow. Mm, that's really Everybody's forgotten it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we just hear that the church hates science and they shut Galileo down. My very kind of first grade remembrance of reading about this, and I believe um, it was probably, um, now I'm going to forget the author's name. I'm so sorry. It's one of my favorites too. But the book is Catholicism and Fundamentalism. And one of the things that the author talks about is that um, that he acted in disobedience to the church. He was asked not to disrupt the church's interpretations of things at that time, but to give the church, with the, which then, of course, would grind possibly slowly a chance to weigh in and to make a decision about how to present these theories. Um, I imagine the frustrated scientist going, no, this is too exciting. <laughs> and yet, if you look at the history, you realize he was asked that in 1616. His best friend became Pope in 1623. Oh, it wow. was 10 years later that he finally published the book. So he did wait nearly 20 years. Wow. And he thought he had the go-ahead from oh. his friend, the Pope. My gosh. So as I say, the story is a whole lot more complicated than, <laughs> uh, than anybody can sum up in a soundbite. Oh, really appreciate you're giving us that context, Brother Guy. It's, it's actually really fun, isn't it, delving into the It is. Of it. And history is always fun. Because you realize over and over again, nobody's changed. I can relate to Galileo. I know people like him who were brilliant and arrogant and right sometimes for the wrong reasons and think they're doing the right thing and think they're being clever. And boy, one of the nastiest, stupidest things you can do is to try to be clever. <laughs> usually comes back and bites you. I know. Yeah, I've tried that. <laughs> <laughs> Who of us hasn't? <laughs> okay, so put it to context for us that now in modern times. What are the goals of the observatory? Really, um, it's to do good science. When I arrived, that was my job. What do do? Do good science, whatever science you want to do, because our goal is to be scientists in the scientific world. Not even so much anymore to show scientists that, you know, religion's on their side, because I've found, you know, certainly in astronomy, that easily as many astronomers in the field are churchgoers as you'll find in the general public. They're not the ones who need to be converted. The people who need the reassurance are the people in the pews. You know, because if you've been a religious believer and you're comfortable with your religion and somebody tells you you have to choose between that and science, the temptation is to say, well, then the heck with science. Right. And that would be a crime. That would be a shame because science is one of the ways we get to know the creator. And so we're here to remind people, don't let the atheists win. Or even worse, don't let the fundamentalists win. Yeah, exactly. That can be so confusing because we want to be docile. We want the, those of us who are really serious about our faith, we want to be able to say, all right, well, then if I have to make a choice, of course, I'm going to choose you know, my family and I will follow the ways of God as for me and my household. But when it's a you false don't choice, have to choose. that's right. It's yeah. a false choice. It's, a, it's just completely uh, propaganda. I go back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham thinks he has to sacrifice his son. Now, how many people would believe in God so much they'd be willing to do that? That's a great thing. 
But then how many people would be in tune with God enough to hear the voice from heaven saying, spare the child? This is a sacrifice I'm not asking you to make. Beautiful. That's a great insight. I love that because we do have to hear the whole message from God, not just something filtered through uh, the, the world's messages. Now, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't only listen to the things you want to hear or the things you're afraid to hear. Ooh. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so, Brother, you're, you're well known for, for saying and for demonstrating ways that science helps us to discover Christ. Can you say some things about that that are important to you? The very important thing is to remember that faith comes first. When I look at the universe using the tools of science, but already having the eyes of faith, then I see God in the beauty of the universe. Then I see God not only in the sunset that's beautiful, but also the equations that explain where all those colors come from. But the faith comes first. If you don't have that faith, if you're not looking for it, you won't be able to see it. And that's nothing new because that actually is how we learn science. I remember uh, a friend of mine taking a geology course, and they went out to a road cut where you can see all the rocks twisting and turning around. And the professor is explaining, well, this happened, and then that happened, and then the earth had an uplift, and this happened. And the guy said, you know, it was so confusing. If I hadn't believed it, I would never have seen it. Ooh. Which is the opposite of what people usually think. But it's true. You have to have this faith that God is there before you can see God. But once you're confident that God can be found there, then God's everywhere. Mm, the eyes of and faith. The, and, the, and the temptation is to say to your atheist friend, oh, you're so stupid, can't you see it? But they've made a different <laughs> assumption. And you know, every logical system starts with assumptions. And you change your assumptions, you can prove that parallel lines do touch rather than are going on infinitely because you assume that you're on a sphere instead of a flat plane. You, your assumptions change the way you see the world and your faith is your biggest assumption. So don't expect it to be proved, but certainly expect it to be confirmed and made more and more rich. The God of Genesis who made a world that was flat with the dome and the dome extended from the farthest mountains you could see is bigger than any creature in the universe. And that's pretty darn big. And you're going, oh my gosh, what a God we've got. If instead of making a flat earth with a dome, you have a universe that extends 13.8 billion light years in every direction and extends beyond what we can see. We know it must be there even though we can't see it anymore. And bigger than that is the God who made it. Then our science has made us really appreciate how great God is. And if you say the universe is so big and I'm so small, how can God notice me? Then you might be led to doubt. But if you'd put it the other way and you say the universe is so big and I'm so small, the fact that God does notice me and pays all of his attention to me and also to my little brother, and also to my teacher, and also, well, maybe not to my dad, I'm mad at him, but you know, whatever <laughs> it is. The fact that God can do that is because God is infinite. And that makes us appreciate what infinite really means, because the temptation is always to make God too small. Yeah, and I, and I love um, just listening to different people who have been enthused about discovering God and science, where you can find evidence of God's 
order and his tender regard for our well-being under a microscope as well as through a high-powered telescope or through, as you said, the beauty of an equation that, that tells you something that's true. And the real clue to me is that beauty and joy and a sense of elegance is necessary to do the science. How do I even choose what problem to work on? It comes out of something in my heart that says, I want to study this. Where did that come from? It's not logical, but it's essential. When I decide to study this particular thing and I want to say, which is the way that I want to study it? Of all the possible routes that I could take, where am I going to put my effort? Where did that come from? It came from your heart. It came from your instinct. And you choose the one that brings you joy. And you're satisfied when you have an explanation that makes you joyful. Astronomy is not the study of stars and planets. Astronomy is a study of human beings and how we have understood stars and planets and what we're doing right now to understand stars and planets, but the study of people. And it's the study of our human understanding and our human contribution to the universe. People forget that, you know, when they argue, well, what happened to Pluto that you changed? Nothing happened to Pluto. Pluto is what Pluto And that change in us as people that metanoia, that conversion experience, boy, is it parallel to the very kinds of conversion experiences that bring us closer to God. I love that openness to the human element in science, like really acknowledging, because I mean, let's face it, there have been times when scientists have promoted personal agendas through their findings, sometimes to the point of creating hoaxes. Um, but we're not really talking, uh, we're not really at that end of the spectrum, are we? We're talking about something more subtle. Not only that, but scientists who want to be atheists, um, I have great respect for, because there are a lot of ideas of God out there that I don't believe in. I don't believe in the God who's nasty and looking for a way to trip you up. Right. I don't believe in the God who does things on a whim without uh, being constant age to age and giving us ways to come to know God. I don't believe in a God that... Uh, doesn't care, winds up the clock and walks away. And if you don't believe in those gods, we're together. Because I only believe in one God, the God that I find in scripture, the God who I find in prayer. And that God is complicated enough as it is, rather than <laughs> me trying to impose my ideas. And so people, if people say they don't believe in God, there's a lot of gods I don't believe in either. The important thing is to not think that I know God totally and completely, any more than I know my best friend, or my parents, or, you know, the person I marry eventually, if you get married. You know, if you think your spouse is a problem to be solved, or your best friend is a problem to be solved, you're not in love with that person. But if your best friend is somebody who you're always learning things about, my parents were married 72 years. In the last year of their life, they were still discovering things about each other. That's how we have to be with science. That's how we have to be with nature. That's how we have to be with God. And that's why we're not fundamentalists. That's not why we, that, that's, that's why we're not fundamentalists. That's why we don't say, I've got the answer. It's all in this book. I don't have to look any further. <laughs> because that's a dead relationship. And God is inviting us to a live relationship. I love that love, the wonder, the curiosity that helps us to keep learning. And it, and it starts in a place of humility, doesn't it? It does. And you find that in the scientists who describe what they do. There are a lot of scientists who are Catholics out there. I 
remind you that, you know, in your studio, you've got the names of two very devout Catholic scientists all over the place in your electronic equipment, Mr. Volta and Mr. Ampere. Look up, um, you know, Jean-Marie Ampere. He was a phenomenally devoted French, lived through the French Revolution, became very devoted to his religion, supported a number of the saints who were starting, you know, religious orders in Paris during that time. Look up Mr. Volta and see how devoted he was to his faith. Look up modern scientists who were very active Catholics. Um, A lot of people know about the fellow who invented the Big Bang, Georges Lemaitre. Mm. He was a Catholic priest and came up with the idea of this expanding universe. A lot of other people don't realize that uh, Planck of Planck's Constant was also a deeply religious person. Uh, Maxwell of Maxwell's Equations was deeply religious. He was Anglican. There are, in our science to this day, Nobel Prize winners who are Catholics, uh, scientists who are running major institutions who are deeply religious, and anybody who tells you you have to be an atheist to be a scientist or that being a scientist is going to make you an atheist sure doesn't know the scientists I know. Yeah, I was, I was fascinated. Um, there's a naturalist in our homeschool network, and she pointed out to us and had our children reading a book about St. Nicholas Stino, who is considered to be the yes. father of geology. Geology, right? And an <laughs> Italian as well. I've got a there point of go. an Italian connection. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it, it's really wonderful the way our wonder in discovering God uh, does always lead him to him. And uh, are there any particular scientific discoveries that really light you up as far as how they have helped you to see the glory of God or his presence or anything else? Well, in one sense, the science I do is very tiny. I'm just making little bricks that will go into building a bigger cathedral. So if I say that I had this burst of joy when I plotted the density of my meteorites against their magnetic properties, it's, it was exciting to me. It may be exciting to four other people in the world. Oh, it's wonderful. But when you're there and you've experienced it and you just get this God tapping you on the shoulder saying, isn't that cool? Yes. Boy, I'm so glad you caught that. Now let me show (laughs) you the next one. But there's also that sense when you go out at night and after I've spent the day staring at a computer screen, making calculations about stars and planets, to go outside and realize that I can see them for myself. I can lay down in the grass and look up at the sky. And I'm reminded, too, of something Pope Benedict said at a sermon on Holy Saturday. Of course, that that feast where you all bring in candles and you celebrate light. And he says, you know, it's so sad nowadays. We can't see the stars because of all the city lights. He says, that's a symbol of what sinfulness is, blotting out God's light with our own lights, our own lights that don't show us the beauty that God wants us to see. Ooh, that's that's really lovely to contemplate. I mean, and sad too. Yeah, yeah, it really it's is. It's also fun that we've got popes who you know use our astronomy to to uh, tell a story. Absolutely, absolutely. I I feel like there is that childlike delight in people who are most alive in Christ. Um, is there? Do you have any particular hopes? I know that um, you mentioned before we started recording that you love science fiction, and so many of so many science fiction authors. Uh, have been prophetic in the things that they've imagined. Any particular hopes that you have for future scientific discoveries? 
Well, I do hope we find life, even bacterial life, on another planet. It's only until you have more than one example of life that you have a better idea of what is life. Um, there are some who will say that life is only complicated chemistry. And I say life is really wonderful, fantastic complicated chemistry. There's no only about it. <laughs> and the fact that we're in a universe that allows this kind of chemistry to occur is, again, to me, a sign of God's uh, playful creativeness. So finding life anywhere would be a great, great joy. Seeing planets being formed. You know, we're already seeing places where planets have been formed, which I never thought would happen in my lifetime. And we're seeing the disks of gas and dust around other stars that were only theoretical, you know, when I was a student. So who knows what we're going to find in the next 10, 20, or 100 years. I'm really envious of the kids who are studying science now, because you and I can't even imagine the things they're going to discover. Amen. And I wanted to share, we're going to put this at the show notes, but you shared a couple of links too for our homeschooling families to take a look at. And I also want to encourage everyone to find Brother Guy at the Vatican Observatory. It's vaticanobservatory.va, but there's lots of videos and very cool resources there. And I'm sure a lot of it's very upper level, but he's also recommending we go to Sacred Space Astronomy, and that link will be at the, the homepage, and Faith and Science Resources. What would you like to say to homeschooling families as far as starting to delve and encourage their children in the study of astronomy or anything else? Well, simply to let them know that this is a rich Christian and Catholic tradition. We invented science. We did it because we love the Creator. And don't let anybody take it away from you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for this joyful time together. Uh, all the way from Rome to be able to have this chat with you is just so much fun, Brother Guy. Thank God for science that brought us together. And, and thank you for memories of uh, chocolate cake and <laughs> remembering me as well of memories under the stars and, and giving me the chance to share that. I really, really am happy to do that. Oh, it's just my delight. Uh, thank you again, um, Brother Guy Consolmagno, Director of the Vatican Observatory, for sharing your time and wisdom with us. And everybody, stay tuned for just a few more minutes for our short feature, Coming Right Up. Hello, my homeschooling friend. I'm Celeste Behe, and this is Story Strands. Do you remember the movie The Sound of Music, starring Julie Andrews as Maria Von Trapp? In real life, Von Trapp was a singer, a writer, and a big fan of storytelling. She suggested that the Holy Family probably told stories in their home, and so we should do likewise. It's a compelling idea that to make time in our homeschool day to tell stories is to follow the example of Our Lady and St. Joseph as storytellers. Easier said than done? Not if you turn everyday tasks into opportunities for story time. Here are three things to try. Number one, bath time prep story time. It's no coincidence that you get your best ideas while you are in the shower. Research shows that the sound and feel of running water not only help you to relax, but also boost your creativity. So next time you're filling the bathtub for your kiddo, don't just waste that time kneeling on the tile floor watching the water level rise. 
With those burbling sounds making you feel mellow and imaginative, you should use that unleashed creativity to spin a five-minute story while the tub is filling. It's not weird. It's science. Number two, out and about story time. One of my favorite Simon and Garfunkel songs tells of a couple riding a train and watching the other passengers. The lyric goes, She said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy. I said, Be careful, his bow tie is really a camera. Isn't it fun to imagine the lives of the folks you see in public places? Where do they live? What do they do? What secrets are they hiding in their handbags? Create kind-hearted backstories for strangers you see while running errands. It's storytelling at its most inventive. Number three, routine task story time. So why should you tell a story while, say, steam ironing the wool blends? Because you can. Your brain switches into autopilot mode when you are doing routine tasks, allowing you to think creatively while putting a crease in your husband's slacks. And if your story isn't Newbery Award material, so what? Let go of expectations and just have fun spinning a tale. And you thought you couldn't multitask. It is possible to sprinkle stories throughout your busy homeschool days. The key is to make use of time spent running baths, running errands, and doing routine chores. I'm Celeste Behe. Please sign up for my Story Strands newsletter at celestebehe.com. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you, and thank you for joining us.